IndieCast is presented by Uproxx's Indie Mixtape. Hello everyone and welcome to IndieCast. On this show we talk about the biggest indie news of the week, we review albums and we hash out trends. In this episode we review new albums by The Killers and Bleachers. My name is Stephen Hyden and I'm joined by my friend and co-host Ian Cohen. Ian, how are you? Well, like most times we log on here, I'm thinking about, you know, the essence of IndieCast. What makes this podcast ours? And I think particularly today when we're, I guess, stress testing uh, what indie means by talking about killers and bleachers, I think we, in some ways, we got to get back to the core of what we do, which is celebrate the underappreciated. Would you say that's kind of what we do here, right? Well, we try to, but, uh, you know, some other times we're just making... Uh, you know, jokes about, uh, you know, big time pop stars. Yeah. Too. So that's, you never know. That's, that, that, that that's what, that's what, uh, that, that's what fills the bank account. Am I right? But, um, I think this week, you know, particularly in light of who we're covering, uh, I just have to give a shout out to editors, um, you know, in general. Okay. First off, got to clear out like not the band, not like, even though Blood and Munich are two of the best, oh. two of the best fake Interpol songs that came out of that era. I thought you were gonna like steer us toward like a editor's uh, appreciation episode. And, you know, maybe so because I mean, with all of these like UK post punk bands happening, I, I I just want one band that sounds like that. You know, like the ones that are just shamelessly. Uh, like shamelessly basic, uh, just ripping. She wants revenge. I'm gonna reference. She wants revenge. Yeah, exactly. On the, sh- uh, on the show, exactly. Uh, get a band like that. Yeah. Um, I mean, the problem is, is that the first wave of bands, I don't think, sell enough records to inspire the ripoff bands. Oh, you know, yeah. like, like you, like you need one band that's really gonna hit it big, so then you can get all those, uh, you know, delicious ripoff bands that have like one perfect song. Exactly. And then you, well, Editors have two, and Maximo Park have at least five. But we're, but not, but, and, <laughs> uh, you know what? I am, uh, I am totally down for like a second wave post punk revival show. But we'll let the people tell us whether that's what they want. Um, because yeah, I think this goes right back into what we were talking about with like editors in general. Because I mean, like, you, you're talking like editors for editors writers, for like, real, like the actual job, the actual people who like take your 5,000 words of nonsense and craft it into something people besides yourself might want to read. And I mean, that's like what people generally think editors do. And, you know, it's why they don't get taught like, oh, who's your favorite editor on Twitter? Um, I think that this week, though, we have to point out that the like maybe the least appreciated and by extension, the most important job an editor does is save you from your own bad pitch ideas. Um, Because, you know, you're we're writers, we get, ex- like, something pops in our head, we get super excited about it, and, I mean, for example, like, tell me if this one sounds familiar to you. You know, you, you just have this idea that pops in your head, burning in your heart, you just need to get it out, and you tell your editor, like, hey, I have exclusive access to an artist, this person does not do press at all, they've been dead silent for the past couple of years, 
I'm, know, I'm on board. Yeah. I'm on board so far. Super, it sounds good so far. They're super, they, you know, people know who they are. They're pretty popular and they just straight up don't do press. They don't, they, they don't do press because they don't trust the press and they can't find someone who thinks they'll tell their story. So you come to your- Sounds amazing. Yeah. Blank check for you. Like, well, can I ask, who is this person uh, that you have in mind <laughs> uh, for this pitch? Okay. So check this out. I, I know this is going to sound off the wall, but like, what if we did this? And mind you, this is a big publication. This is not some blog. Uh, what if we did, it's 2020, we're going to tell the exclusive Ryan Adams story about what the fuck uh, his life has actually been like post-cancellation. Now, now, look, I get it because as a writer, you got to pay bills. You want to do some story that's distinct from like the usual battery of like, hey, we interviewed Japanese breakfast. Isn't that going to be super cool? Um, but also like any editor would just say like, I think that's a real, like they might take a few days. So your excitement dies down by the time they tell them this is a really bad fucking idea. <laughs> well, okay. So we should give some context yeah, here because uh, there was a story that came out um, earlier this week. It was a, a profile that appeared in Los Angeles magazine yeah. uh, of Ryan Adams. And it was basically his story, like his side of the story. People are dying to hear. The, well, okay. This is an interesting thing because... Because uh, I've been thinking about this. Um, like, do you think that any story about Ryan Adams is a bad idea? Because <laughs> on one hand, if it were the, the thing with this LA Magazine story, and if you're interested in it, you can go look it up if you want. Although um, I don't think it was um, all that well executed, no. in, in my opinion. No. Um, and it's not really worth kind of delving into like the blow by blow of problems <laughs> with the story. But you know. It, there is a part of me that would be curious to read a piece that was well written and was uh, justifiably critical of the subject. Yeah, in a way that this piece wasn't. This piece was basically the writer being sympathetic to Ryan Adams to the point of acting as his public advocate in this story, which I don't think is necessarily the right approach to take with that. <laughs> um, I mean, there is something. I am curious about the idea of someone like him who has been essentially abandoned by people that used to support him. Yeah. And I think that's an interesting story. Where the catch is with Ryan Adams, and this is based on reading that piece, because I think that piece is actually interesting if you read between the lines mm -hmm. of that story. The point of that story that the writer's trying to make is that Ryan Adams has been wronged. But when yeah. I read it, when I read the story between the lines, what that story is is that Ryan Adams is not introspective at all about why people have turned against him. Yeah. And and he is basically, it seems to be that his strategy for coming back is to make people feel sorry for him. Uh -huh. And I don't think that that is going to be effective. Mm. Um, for, maybe for people who already are sympathetic to him, it will. But, you know, there's no point in the story where he just says, look, I was an asshole. I, I recognize it. I'm trying to be a better person. If you had just said that, I really think there'd still be people mad at him, but it would suggest to me a level of self-awareness that I think would make it more likely that he could come back. But when I read that story, I don't see any self-awareness. I see a guy who feels that he's been wrongly maligned and... Uh, he is looking for people to rescue him from this rather than do something about it himself. I mean, that that was my 
read on that. Um, so I don't know, like, how, can you profile a guy like that who I think seems fundamentally dishonest on some <laughs> level and manipulative? Yeah. I mean, or do you write a piece where you recognize that and you show him to be that? I don't know. Because the journalist in me is always like, this could be an interesting story if it were done the right way. Absolutely. But I don't know. I mean, but I did see a lot of people who were just offended by the idea of talking to him at all. Yeah, like society uh, I, has progressed beyond the need for, you know, this sort of guy. But, but I mean, but you can write about him in a way that doesn't endorse him. You know, uh, you can write about him in a way that aims toward trying to understand a guy like that. I think on an you know, objective level, it's like, what the fuck does this guy do with all of his time? But also, it's... they. It, it like they mentioned this person has a crisis PR manager and it seems like this is part of the gig where it's I, I just get super cynical and see this is okay they're just well the, did you see that the crisis manager didn't want to be named yes which I thought was I mean I don't know I think that's probably part of the crisis PR management job to not to be heard and not seen <laughs> I suppose I mean um, the thing that strikes me about this Ryan Adams story isn't that like people are up in arms about it. It's that people don't care enough to be up in arms about it. Like I, I, I actually felt that the response to that story was pretty muted. Yeah. Uh, all told. I mean, you, you saw some people reacting to it, but, um, you know, we, and we've talked a little bit about Ryan Adams on our show already. And I'll, I'll reiterate something I said before that if, if you like Ryan Adams and you think he's canceled, well, Go to any streaming platform. You can hear his yeah. new records. You can go to his Instagram page, and I, I, I believe he's doing uh, streaming shows pretty regularly. According to that story, he has a tour in the works oh, and a Lord. book in the works. So I don't know how he's any less accessible to people who really you know, still want to hear his music. Mm. It, the only difference is that the media isn't covering him. and And that seemed, again, to be... The, the thrust of the story mm. that like, well, why isn't the media covering me as much as they used to? Even though Ryan Adams in that story, I think he likens being interviewed to a violation. Yeah. Who, who can relate? <laughs> well, it's like, you're not, then you're not being violated all that much lately, <laughs> Ryan, because there's not a lot of people who are interested in talking to you about your music. So, yeah. you know, maybe you should be happy about that on, on, on some level. Um, I don't know. I mean, there was also that Joseph Arthur. Yeah. Big, big story. week for LA dipshits getting like, <laughs> get getting hype for like doing things that make them pariahs. Uh, yeah. Cause well, cause Joseph Arthur, we should say this. Yeah, can, hold on. People... Can you, can you just tell me like Joseph Arthur is a guy I keep getting confused with like, other kind of like rootsy people who show up on like you know uh, like i might get this guy confused with like ron sexsmith up in this bitch like explain to our listeners who this guy is for a second well, jo well joseph arthur he's the singer songwriter who has um been on the scene for over 20 years I, I i believe that his first big record was released on peter gabriel's label secret world oh. um in in the late 90s and i can't remember the name of the record uh, because Arthur to me is this artist who he always, he, it seems like his greatest talent is collaborating with like really talented people who I guess think he's talented or maybe he's just like a good hang. I, I don't know, <laughs> but you know, like Peter Gabriel sent him to his label, you know, he's hung out with Lou Reed. He's made like two albums with Peter Buck. What? Called, they, have, they have a band called Arthur Buck. Yeah. He, he's, <laughs> he's been involved in like other 
you know, quasi supergroups where he's always like the least famous guy <laughs> in the band. But there's there seems to be this feeling in the in the in the musician community anyway that this is a worthwhile guy to hang out with. But yeah, he was uh, featured in the L.A. Times this week, um, talking about how he's apparently now a big anti-vaxer, and it it's threatening his career. Uh, I think his uh, like like he's lost some of his support team because of it. I think maybe his like booking agent quit. Uh, among other people. I mean, this is a little bit different than the Ryan Adams story because I think the LA Times story was more of a straightforward just kind of reporting what this guy thinks. (laughs) I don't feel like the story was sympathetic to him. I mean, maybe you could argue, like, well, why even give this guy any attention at all? Um, Is he going to be like Ariel Pink getting on, like, Fox News now? Like, this guy who's, like, not... Who's who's been kind of under the radar? His like career is on a downslope, and all of a sudden, because of this like stance that he takes, he's going to get like embraced by right wingers. Yeah, I don't know if people are going to make the case that he's being canceled, <laughs> because I mean, you could certainly make that case if you want to, but yeah, he doesn't seem like a guy who ever had like a great career no. anyway. And you know, and in a sense, I feel like you could make the same argument about Ryan Adams that. You know, he's at the point of his career where he was going to be playing music for a cult of fans anyway, Mm -hmm. even without all of this scandal around him. You know, how much do music websites cover 46-year-old singer-songwriters anyway at this point? Especially someone like him, who I think most people would agree is about a decade or so, maybe more, past his like creative prime content never um, sleeps. Like there, I think people need to understand that about, uh, you know, like why is someone publishing this or like, why is like, dude, it's there, there is a constant need for content <laughs> and I suppose. Yeah. And you get like, Oh, Joseph Arthur. Yeah. Let's, that, that, that's vaccine. That's relevant. Yeah. Yeah. And but, but again, the thing with Arthur that always blows me away is how he gets all these people to make music with him. Yeah. And he comes off a little nutty in that LA Times story, but he must be a good hang. He must be a guy. It's like, ah, oh, he's a pretty good songwriter, but I love just, you know, hanging out at his, at his pad in LA. You know, that, that's my <laughs> only theory on why that would happen because I don't really understand. Maybe it. he's got a PlayStation 5 or something like that. Um, do we, do we want to talk about the, the chromatics breaking up? Yeah. Speaking of LA, no, nah, I'm just playing. Um, they're, they're a cool band, but I don't know. It's, it's, I just think it's like funny that it was like breaking news. The other people in chromatics announced that it's breaking up, which I mean, it, that I just thought that was like not unexpected. I mean, I think for people of a, you know, people who still like wear leather jackets in 70 degree weather in LA, like Dear Tommy is more or less the Wren's album, something that's just like constantly teased. Like, mind you, I did a I did a profile on Johnny Jewel. Uh, it started in 2014 and finally published in 2015 about the upcoming Dear Tommy album, which has never come out. Uh, and I like it's like the other guys in the shins and like the non James Mercer guys in the shins announced that the shins are breaking up. You know, it's, uh, I, I just like the fact that how it was framed as actual news. Steve, do you care about this band at all? Like I love kill for love, but yeah, well, and we should say for those who maybe don't remember chromatics was this, uh, synth 
rock group that was popular in the early 2010s. I really associate them with the movie Drive and like the uh, and how that movie I think helped set the tone for oh, God, yeah. a lot of indie culture oh, in the 2010s Lord. as far as like fetishizing uh, you know 80s uh, aesthetics. Yeah, and uh, and uh, chromatics were a part of that. You mentioned Kill for Love. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I I always thought that was like a cool record. I I mean, my feeling on this band generally was that they were more vibe than substance. Yeah. And that if I heard a song or two, that was usually enough. Mm-hmm. I also think about like that uh, that cover of Neil Young, um, Neil Young, uh, Into the Blue, uh, My My Hey Hey yeah. on that record, and how I mean, is am I giving that too much credit in terms of like setting the tone for movie trailers and like the ironic oh god uh, yeah. cover yeah of like a classic rock song well, like a sad cover of a classic rock yeah song. it's I not feel I- like that was like like an early version of that yeah it's not ironic so much as like let's just pitch it down like hat like switch the gender of the vocals but like so much of what we're going to view as like quote indie culture from the mid-aughts like you can draw a straight line between uh you could draw a straight line from kill for love and stranger things or like the career of survive that uh that act you can talk about like the movie trailers uh like you were mentioning how you just find like some pop song and do like a drumless like reverby <laughs> dark cover of it um yeah it, it it's like it's like this monument and the fact that it's not being followed up probably for the best um like i mean i think that gave us all we really needed from chromatics and um yeah i'll pour one i'll pour one out for this band yeah, I mean, again, I think, you know, we've talked about this on our show many times, that there's it's no sin to make a record that's dated. Yes. Uh, mm-hmm. Because it means that you've marked time. You've helped define the sound of a particular era. And I think Chromatics, Kill for Love, that whole thing, it, it definitely feels very early 2010s yes. to me. Specifically L.A. Yeah. <laughs> Should we mention the new Big Thief songs that came out this week? You know, I, I, I'm a little wary to talk about this band because Big Thief, I feel like th- this was a band that I, I was an early adopter of this group. Uh, I loved their first record, Masterpiece, Capacity, when that came out, which I still think is the best Big Thief record. That's a take. Uh, is it? I don't think it should be. I, but it is. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I really feel like the records that like say pitchfork got on mm. like are not as good mm. as capacity like those like the two records that they put out in the same UFOF year. and two hands yeah which i there's quite a lot i like on those records but it's also the beginning of them i think sounding more like an adrian linker solo project than a band and uh buck meeks hat's doing a lot of work on those albums though he is but i don't know the, they don't sound as bandy to me, maybe as the first two records do. But um, I don't know the discourse around this band. I've really come to not like Ooh. very much. Well, it's that it's got nothing to do with the band. It's the it's the discourse around the what band. Is, I feel what is what like, is the discourse around this band? Well, I feel like I feel like they're sometimes I feel like their attributes are exaggerated, and I feel like their weaknesses are exaggerated. Hmm. And it's like everything in social media. It's very black and white. Uh, and I just feel like both sides are having a conversation about Big Thief that I don't really want to have. <laughs> I don't think that they're the best band in the world or best band in indie, but I also don't think that they're just like this boring hippie group. You know, that seems to be the two 
takes that you're allowed to have of a big thief. And I actually feel like the truth is somewhere in the middle. Um, again, I guess maybe I'm in the minority at this point. To like, I prefer their mm-hmm. first two records to like what they've done since. Um, but I think they're a really good band. I think to reduce them to like this sort of hippie stereotype, <laughs> which I understand because their their photos are very much catering to that. Like anytime Adrian Lankard talks, like it really is hard to not have that uh, view of them. I mean, they started out on Masterpiece Rootsy. as this essentially like all yeah, kind of like all country band, and I guess people now might look at that as like a more basic yeah. version of the band, like, like, like <laughs> their Pablo Honey or something. Um, but I actually feel like the directness of a lot of those songs uh, still really appeals to me. Um, and I think on Capacity, they took it in more of an art rock direction, which they've extended on their subsequent records. But it still was rooted in more of, a, mm. I guess, band identity to me. It, it yeah. wasn't quite as meandering as some of their later records. Still like those later records, but um, I don't know. I mean, I, I liked Little Things. Yeah, that song's is, amazing. I don't know if that's the, if that's the A that side is. of the single. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the second song, to me, was more more in the vein of like a lot of Big Thief, Adrian Linker stuff, where it's pretty, but it feels like a little, again, yeah, my, to me. It, it doesn't, it's not quite as strong. as a song yes. like Mary, you know, which is like one of the great Big Thief songs. That's from Capacity. That's like, and I think that whole mm. record, or Shark Smile, you know, I think that record is really like the great happy medium of, of them having a more arty thing, but also rooted in more of like, I guess, like a old country type sensibility. What I like about Big Thief or appreciate about Big Thief is that they seem like because they're a band and they have that like hippie uh, sort of ring to them is that they're like one of the main characters of like music Twitter that you could still kind of clown. Because there aren't two, like, that you can clown in kind of like a way that's like, look at their press photos or whatever. Because, you know, that was something you could do a lot in the aughts. But nowadays, it's like, you make, like, I remember, like, when someone said, oh, Big Thief are kind of boring. And that was like a two-day controversy on Twitter. Like, people are so not used to having bands, like, actually, A, bands, and B, like, being able to just, like, make fun of their hats. Yeah, well, yeah, I think, um, yeah, someone from uh, yeah. the New York Times, they, they tweeted that, like, oh, Big Thief's a boring band, and, and people yeah, got upset. Yeah, they are not the big country emo star of the future. Right, and I know you <laughs> said that you thought that was, like, the funniest mini-controversy. and I, It was funny. It was funny, but I was, you know, it, I was like, I, I know that there's funnier controversies than this, and one thing that immediately came to mind and I know you'll appreciate this, is that like when, mm. when, the, when the last Japan Droids record came out, do you remember like how that record was criticized because they didn't talk about Trump on, on that record? <laughs> yeah. Why is this Canadian party rock band not talking about Donald Trump on an album that they made like prior to the election? Well, they were like, they were like the people in Saving Private Ryan that like get out of the boat immediately and get shot yeah. in the head because I, that record came out, if I recall... It was I January think, 2017, yeah, January, like a, a couple weeks after, like the week after the inauguration. Yeah, exactly. So it was, it was queued up to be knocked as like, well, these are like these two white men singing about friendship and beer. This is not <laughs> reflective of the current moment and yada, yada, yada. I mean, it was terrible timing. Yeah. As far as that goes. So I thought that was a funnier controversy. Um, you know, it, it, it is interesting to me 
and look, maybe um, I could be wrong about this, but I feel like on some level, a band like Big Thief, they're safer to uh, make fun of in the music writer Twitter space because there's still this thing where it's okay to rip on an indie band, mm-hmm. but like if you rip on a pop star, mm-hmm. that like you're like this rockist monster, mm-hmm. and like we have to defend the pop star. So that's why like if speaking of funny mini controversies on music writer Twitter, anytime someone takes a shot at like Olivia Rodrigo mm-hmm. or music made by teenagers, yeah. you have to have like 50 music writers <laughs> standing up uh, to, to defend the sanctity of, of teen pop, you know, because that is beyond the pale to rip that, but you can rip the critically acclaimed indie band from Brooklyn. Like that's still okay. To well, do. yeah. And also it's easier to make fun of a band because it deflects some of, you know, like what you could say, like if it was, if Adrian Linker was like more or less big thief, like she, like if she was like a solo artist and there were no pictures of the other guys in the band, yeah, it would be a lot harder to say the same things about that person. It's a lot harder to make fun of like a single person than it is a band. And I think that's one of the differences we've seen, you know, in the past decade where, you know, more of the people are, are solo artists. So when you take shots at their music, it's like you're taking shots at them personally. And so Big Thief uh, helps deflect that, which I appreciate. Same with, like, we talked about, like, Black Midi. Right. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I'm curious to see where Big Thief goes on on this latest record. I mean, we've talked about them before. Um, You know, I, I feel like their biggest supporters now exaggerate their greatness a little bit. You know, not to say that I, because again, I was an early adopter of this band. I like them a lot. I don't think that they're the best band in the planet. I think some of their music mm. is a little samey, and I think they've almost been too prolific lately. And we've talked about this in the past that, like, you know, mm. I think we likened them to Deer Hunter at some point. How Deer Hunter was so prolific and it almost mm. oversaturated the market a little bit, because. Uh, uh, and, and and then I mean they 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 course corrected with that a little bit later on, uh, but like in the late aughts, I mean yeah. they, they were very. Prolific. And now people who are like twenty four years old cannot possibly understand what it was like when the world revolved around every move that Bradford Cox made. <laughs> yeah, but that's why they listen to our show because we yes. bring it up like every other episode. <laughs> um, let's go to our mailbag and uh, thank you all for for writing in. Uh, if you want to send us an email, you can hit us up at. IndieCastMailbag at gmail.com. Um, one letter we're not going to read is we got a very we got a very colorful piece of hate mail this mm. week that ended with uh, a diatribe. I think I can call it a diatribe. Yeah, it's a fusillade, maybe maybe more of a fusillade than a than a diatribe. Well, this reader who said that he hate he hate listens to the show. So if he's hate listening right now, hello, what we up? did read your letter. Um, but it ends with him essentially likening us to Nazis for encouraging people to get vaxxed. Mm. Uh, so that so that's one letter that we got. I don't think that's representative of the IndieCast community. No. But it's good to hear from... Not that know, we know of shit. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> Maybe there's more. Maybe there's more people out there. Maybe it's all hate listeners yeah. uh, out there, or 85% hate listeners. Uh, but this person doesn't hate listen to us, I don't think. His name's Jesse. He's from Washington, D.C. And he writes in to ask, uh, what album covers do you two consider to be the best 
or your favorite. To Pimp a Butterfly, of course, sends a deeper message than the Great Burrito Extortion Case. What is the Great Burrito Extortion Case? Uh, I, you know, I read that and I'm like, oh, the Flying Burrito Brothers. Uh, it's a Bowling for Soup album. Oh, my God. I like that uh, Jesse dropped that Bowling for Soup reference. Yeah, in. like that was the first. That, like, like, what is the opposite of To Pimp a Butterfly? Like, what, what is the polar? Uh, and it's like, oh, right, a, 2000, a 2006 Bowling for Soup album where they're outside of a, it looks like uh, Las Vegas. They're all in suits and there is a burrito. Uh, I, yes. Yeah. I guess it's, I guess it's like a, it, the, the, uh, I'm, this, oh, that's the one with High School Never Ends. And it's, and it's lesser uh, singles, When We Die and, quote, I'm Gay. That's another one. See, I just, um, I appreciate his confidence that we would know the Bowling for Soup reference. Uh, you know, just just by him dropping the album title. Yeah. And I'm sorry, Jesse, your confidence was misplaced because I didn't know what the hell you were talking <laughs> about. But but now I, I do know uh, the name of that Bowling for Soup record. Yeah. Anyway, he's, he's making the point that some albums t- covers might seem profound, others silly. We all have different criteria for what, you know, what would make our favorite album cover. But he's wondering what are our favorite album covers hmm. of all time? Do you have any choices that kind of come directly to mind? Well, I mean, I have like the American football album cover tattooed on my arm, so I assume that like one. Do you for real, uh, dude? Have you like, yeah this 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 is a this is a real thing, and like the cool thing is like people see it and like, like that's a really cool tattoo. What is it? And they just think it's like a really cool looking house. Um, but I'll have like. If we have to talk about like an album cover besides that one, which you know spawned an entire subgenre of let's put a picture on the house, like let's put a picture of the house on the cover. That'll get across like our 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 adolescent but like early adult yearning for the grand open spaces of the Midwest. But I mean, you have to say like big big bears doing things. That's uh, a pen and pixel. Like it's it's a rap album where it's a guy. In a robe, his name is Big Bear, and he's surrounded by bears that are wearing jewelry and sunglasses. And I love that cover, and people will probably recognize it listening to IndieCast. It's a very big deal amongst the 30-something listening audience where it's an album cover that's, like, so iconic that, like, nobody's actually listened to the album. Like, you can reference that album cover also on, a like, Mercedes' rear end. It's it, it it's just like this album is this album cover is so good I don't even need to listen to the album itself, like I can't think of another one that uh that like almost makes the music itself irrelevant in a good way. But otherwise, if we're like being serious, I have to say like Loveless Battles Mirrored White Pony like the original gray one, not the weird one where the uh it, on on Spotify. You know, just ones that like define, like, yeah, I know exactly what this band's about. Um, there's probably a ton I'm forgetting, but uh, you know, those are the like, it, it's just like when you see it, it's like, oh, that would make a good tattoo. Yeah, you know, there's so many covers that you that are just iconic that we probably don't need to discuss. Whether it's like Abbey Road or you know the cover of uh, Dirty Mind by Prince or you know. Bruce Springsteen, born in the USA, like all these classic covers. Like, let's just push those to the side. Um, one of my favorite album covers that I feel like is definitional for me in terms of like seeing it as a young kid and feeling like, oh, that's why 
I wanted to get into music, right. and that's why I want to like care about rock bands. Is the cover of Electric Warrior mm. by T Rex? That's a good 1971. One. Mark Bolin on the cover. It's a, it's a drawing of him, and there's a huge like Marshall stack behind him playing this guitar. Awesome image. Um, I'd also say the cover of Neil Young's Time Fades Away, which is actually hanging in my office. Mm. And if you don't know the cover, it's like a shot of a of it's like from the stage. It's like at the level of of, of the crowd, and you, you just see all these people standing waiting for a show to begin. It's a very iconic looking thing again that just to me defines like what rock culture mm. is actually uh in the movie almost famous cameron crow recreates that cover at one point uh with a crowd shot like waiting for still water to come on <laughs> um as a as a uh compliment to your big bear example <laughs> i would also bring up uh the John Mayer record Sabra oh, yeah. that came out this year, which I actually do like that album, but I feel that you know a good maybe sixty percent of that album's appeal is the cover, which looks like an LP from the eighties made by the Nice Price. Yeah, it, it looks like the cover of like a Don Henley record or something from like nineteen eighty three, mm. and it it it's a great cover because it's a comment on album covers like if you've been in a lot of record stores and you've thumbed through the stacks you've seen so many covers like that and just the way that it recreates that is uh really the best thing about that record Mm. (laughs) you know really so you know you can even if you don't like john mayer you can appreciate that album cover and not listen to the music i think and and the cover works on that level. But yeah, there's so many covers. I mean, Dark Side of the Moon obviously has a great yeah. cover, <laughs> but we don't need to talk about that. Um, the, the Pink Floyd album covers that are on that every single uh, college guy in the late 90s had the cover where it's like all the covers are projected on the naked women's backs. Right. Yeah. Exactly. That, which I wonder, <laughs> do, do, do the young people of today still have that poster or have we progressed enough where even 18 year old boys would be embarrassed to uh to have hey if if, 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 you're, if you're like part of our younger demographic IndieCast listener please hit us up and also let us know if they have the john belushi college sweatshirt uh one as well and vince van gogh's starry night like that is the starter pack for college dorm room late 90s does this still like are 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 we completely out of touch here at IndieCast? Yeah, like 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 a Scarface poster <laughs> or uh, like a Boondock Saints poster. Oh man, uh, are people still rocking that stuff? <laughs> yeah, definitely want to know about that. All right, we've now reached the meat of our episode. We're going to be reviewing two albums uh, in this episode. The first one is called Pressure Machine. It's by a band called The Killers, mm. and uh, this is the first band I think that we've talked about twice in terms of new album releases uh, yeah the the previous killers record imploding the mirage came out in august 2020 right after we started mm. and here we are almost exactly a year later after the release of that record and here is another killers record uh coming at us uh, again it's called pressure machine and we talked last year about imploding the mirage being a record that i think we both felt was a comeback for the Killers after a couple of records that really seemed to suggest that the band was losing their way. And yeah, I, I had an interview with Brandon Flowers that ran this week uh, where he 
himself says that records like Battleborn and Wonderful Wonderful, mm. while they might have their moments, he, he basically says we were adrift. We didn't really know like where we were going. And he felt like with Imploding the Mirage, they got their feet back on the ground. And they really got there because, well, I think in large part because they worked with a new production team uh, headed up by Sean Everett, who's worked with The War on Drugs on a bunch of recent records, mm-hmm. as well as bands like Alabama Shakes. And Jonathan Rado, who used to be in the band Foxygen, who we've talked about on this show. Yes, we have. And uh, on Imploding the Mirage, it was really about the killers getting back to making these very shiny, splashy, larger-than-life arena rock anthems, showing that they could do that again. And I think that record showed that they did. This new record is a very interesting contrast because I think it's a much different sort of record, mm-hmm. whereas Imploding the Mirage is is deliberately, again extroverted and boisterous and and is really i think trying to win people over pressure machine is like this difficult record in a lot of ways it's their most uh lyrics oriented record that the killers have ever made which you might not think necessarily would be a strength that they would want to focus on but uh i have to say that like what brandon flowers is doing on this record which is he's essentially writing a song cycle about uh, his boyhood home of Nephi, Utah. Mm. And he's writing these story songs. And then uh, they also added real-life interviews with people from the town that were essentially recorded at the last minute. Mm. Like, they were they were recorded after the songs were written. But, like, it's amazing how often the interview snippets reflect what the songs are about. And it actually works really well. Like, it, it, I, I tweeted recently that... It, I felt like the killers were trying to make an early aughts bright eyes record. And and really that was leaning on the spoken word aspects of this record, as well as some of the uh, choices sonically, which I, again, for a killer's record, this is like a relatively lo-fi record. I know Brandon Flowers in our interview talked a little bit, a, a little bit about Nebraska, uh, the Bruce Springsteen record being a reference point. Um, and there's a lot of things about this record that you would think wouldn't work on paper, but I found myself being like really impressed by it. And again, it's it's not trying to be Nebraska. It's more like a like a dusty New Order record, <laughs> or like if New Order made like a like a record about small town America, like that's what this record is. But uh, I have to say, like I I really feel like the Killers, who were a band that I wrote off and said this band is finished. I think that they've made two of their best records uh, in you know the early 2020s, um, and it's one of the more impressive comebacks that I can remember in music, like in the last maybe 20, 25 years. I mean, honestly, I think that they are really making good music right now, and I like this record a lot. Uh, what like, what do you think of it? Yeah, when you first said that, oh, they're trying to make an early Bright Eyes album. Like my first thought, like no offense, Steve, but it's like, yeah, this person has clearly not heard any Bright Eyes albums from before uh, I'm Wide Awake. It's morning, and yet you prove me wrong because the first thing you hear is like a 30, 45 second uh, tape recording of some guy like talking. I'm like, where the fuck is this going? But I was like. I was in a situation where I was just like listening to this album on the on the on the stream that the promo that was sent, and I'm like, wait a minute, like this is like good, good. It's not just. I think in a lot of ways the previous Killers album was like, okay, cool. It's good to have them back. It's good to hear them in a different context. They seem revitalized. This sounds to me like an album with 
actual legs on it. Um, I was just kind of shocked that it's so... I mean, in the past, the killers have made songs about, you know, people. But, like, you always assume that, like, they're not real people. They're just, like, these kind of confabulations of, you know, old Bruce Springsteen records and Journey and Bon Jovi, which I think is key to the killer's appeal. Like, they all see those bands as playing kind of the same game. But when he talks about, like, living in this, like, what's it, 600 people, like, live in this town of Nephi? I think it's 3,000. Okay. Three or three to five, 4,000. Yeah, but he's there's, like, no stoplights there. And you think about, like, this guy, Brandon Flowers, this, like, uh, person who, like, with all due respect to him, does not come off like a man of the people. Like, even Bruce Springsteen, no matter how popular he gets, you always think this guy could maybe go work at the car wash, you know, at some point, or, like, you know, work on the factory line. Like, Brandon Flowers is just, like, an unbelievably uh, well-proportioned, uh, symmetrical-faced dude. And he's talking about, like, these people in his hometown who, like, get caught up on meth and, um, you know, just have these, like, go-nowhere lives. And and the fact that he does it, it's still very killersy. Uh, like, the production's very loud. Like you said, Dusty New Order. I think that's pretty on point. Um, I, I do wonder if like people will kind of view them as like these truth tellers now about these people who are speaking for this forgotten part of America um, and that there's maybe like more substance to their music in the past that people than people would generally allow. Like, I, I think that this album compared to the last one might cause like the entire career of killer the killers to be um to be reassessed, which is about the most impressive thing, like a you know a band on like twenty years in on their eighth album or whatever can do. Yeah, I mean, to me, it really is about these two albums together, yeah, and how they show the range of this band. Because this was something that Flowers and I talked about that when they when they started out, they were very much coming from more of a British tradition. Yeah, like he said that like when he was growing up, he loved Britpop and he loved eighties UK underground music. You know, The Cure, The Smiths, Oasis, groups like that. And then around the time of Samstown, they got into this American thing and they went way over the top with that on Samstown. I think in a very entertaining way. Oh, yeah. But it was about trying to find a way to like put Bruce Springsteen and John Prine in the same context as New Order and The Smiths. Mm. And they've gone back and forth between those two extremes a lot throughout their career. But on this record, Pressure Machine, I think that they have combined those influences in the most interesting way yet yeah. where like if this is their version of Nebraska, it still sounds like a band that listened to a lot of British music mm -hmm. when they were growing up, you know, they're not going whole hog into like full on Bruceisms, <laughs> which, which they've done at times in the yeah. past, uh, in, in maybe a overly derivative way. This record, it, it just seems like, Oh, this seems unique to them and it's unique to them sonically. And also, as you said, because Brandon Flowers is writing about this specific corner of America that he's from, that nobody's from. Never, <laughs> yeah, no one, no one's made a record about like rural Utah like this before. Um, and it, and look, I don't want to go overboard in praising this record. There's still <laughs> some of the uh, liabilities that all Killers records have. It it, it can be um, a bit much. I think <laughs> it can be a bit much at times. I think. Uh, there are some filler songs here and there, but for the most part, I think that the record really holds together well as an album. And 
I really have to tip my cap to them because, again, this is their seventh record. And I think it's totally unlike anything they've ever done before. And that's a pretty big achievement, I think, for a band. For any band, really. Yeah. To, to be able to pull off. Uh, so, yeah, The Killers, like one of the surprises of 2021 and 2020. Uh, but, yeah, very excited about what they're doing right now. Um, let's move on to Bleachers. Yes, another uh, an, 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 another scrappy up-and-comer. <laughs> yeah, another scrappy up-and-comer. Another, uh, I guess, Bruce-indebted indie act. Yeah. If you want to call them indie. <laughs> Uh, they have a new album, uh, that came out, I guess it came out in late July. It was originally going to come out in mid August, yeah. but it came out about three weeks early. Mm-hmm. It's called take the sadness out of Saturday night. Yeah. That's the title. It's, <laughs> it's, uh, it's a very, uh, you know, speaking of Japan droids <laughs> or, or, or even like a, that's more like a beach slang album title in a way. <laughs> um, but, uh, this is the third bleachers record. And of course, before that, Jack Antonoff, who's the main person in Bleachers, he was in the bands Fun and Steel Train. Steel Train. And uh, he had great success with Fun, but of course, we now know him best as the producer of some of the biggest female singer-songwriters on the planet, including Taylor Swift, Lord, Lana Del Rey, St. Vincent, and Claro. Mm. I don't know if I missed anyone there. Yeah. Did I miss any huge superstars that he's worked with lately? Um. And it's really, like, through his production work that he's built his name and also has created a backlash Mm. against him. And there's been a lot of pieces written about him. I wrote something about him for uh, Ask a Music Critic column. The headline was, Is Jack Antonoff Overrated? Mm. Uh, That was a a question from a a reader that I tried to uh, answer. And on one hand, it seems like a little unfair because he does just seem like a nice guy. <laughs> and it's, it, it appears that a lot of artists trust him. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I assume that he is someone who's, who's good to work with and is a good collaborator. Um, but there's a couple things about him. He seems to have, how can I put this delicately? Like that <laughs> Don't, online... put it de- Don't put it delicately. Go there. Well, you know, you know that thing like where like the like the aggressively online male feminist, you know, energy, like like that guy yeah. when he's on social media who's like a little too eager to promote how enlightened he is, yeah. you know, and how that can be a turnoff for both men and women. He seems to have that a little bit, and I wonder if that turns people off. And there's also just the fact that he's massively overexposed yeah. at this point. And you could be the nicest guy in the world, and but if your if your mug is around every corner, people are going to get sick of you. And it is almost like a joke now that like any time a big time album by a female artist is announced, that Jack Antonoff is f- like trailing that person like a little comet, you know, <laughs> like like immediately after that's announced, I. I mean, like, do you think people are being unfair to Jack Antonoff? I mean, what, what, what's your take on this guy? It, you know, the more I interact with his music, the f- less I find myself able to, like, formulate the sort of... Uh, <clears throat> the, the more I find myself unable to formulate a sort of anger around him. Because, like, everything you said about, you know, a lot of, like, female fans of, like, female artists, like, whenever one starts to come up, they'll be like, keep Jack Antonoff away from, say, like, Billie Eilish or whatever. Whereas... A lot of like the, you know, a lot of guys are just like, there's something about this guy that just seems kind of off. And um, so, you know, it's a firm person to debate. But like when you listen to his 
records, whether it's the production or Bleachers itself. I'm like, what does this guy actually, like, what does this guy do? And I mean that, like, I know that he's kind of like, um, you know, he's like a musician and a producer and just like an ideas guy. Um, but, you know, I, I can't even identify his uh, distinct touch the way I could with like Rostam, you know, the guy from, because a lot of this Bleachers album sounds a little bit like uh, deboned Rostam in that like some songs remind me a little bit of like Vampire Weekend or they remind me a little bit of like that guy's own solo work and you know I I like I if I he, if I know a Lord album is coming out I'm like I can oh yeah that's Jack Antonoff but if I heard it in the wild like would I be able to identify what this guy actually does so yeah. I mean like do you, well, how would you describe what he actually does? well I mean I think that when he started, when he started getting famous, I, I feel like what he was associated with was this eighty style maximalism. Okay, you know, taking taking moments that you remember from big time eighties pop records and rearranging them and recontextualizing them and, and and injecting them into modern pop music. So you know, like like fun, like we are young, like yeah. a song like that. Yeah. I feel like is an example of that or. You, you listen to an album like 1989 by Taylor Swift, which like really put him on the map as a as a pop producer. Uh, I think that was true of those records. It does seem that as time has gone on, that he doesn't really have a distinct sonic personality, even in the way that he did like in the mid 2010s. Mm-hmm. And maybe you know that's his strength in terms of who he's collaborating with because. He's not a guy who's going to just impose his own style on an artist. Yeah. He does seem like someone who's going, who's who's malleable enough to work with different kinds of people and and to let them play their strengths. Which, just speculating on this, I mean, it seems like that is maybe part of what people like about yeah. him. Uh, I mean, that's my that's my best guess with that because I I'm in the same boat as you. I I listen to his records, and it's not like listening to say. The Neptunes in the <laughs> late '90s and early 2000s, where you heard their records and you knew it was the Neptunes, yeah, and and they had a signature and uh, it was exciting to hear. Or even it. Steve Albini, okay. for that matter. Like you know, like you can kind of tell, like you can think of, oh, that's like either they were produced by Steve Albini because it's super dry and close mic, um, but. Yeah. Or even like, you know, we mentioned Sean Everett and oh, Jonathan yeah. Rado working with the Killers. I mean, Rado has also worked with Father John Misty, Sean Everett, of course, with The War on Drugs. Mm-hmm. And there's certain things about their records where you're like, oh, yeah, I can hear connections between different things that they've worked on. Right. Uh, in a way, I think that's harder with Antonoff. I, okay, so getting back to this Bleachers record. Yeah. I did, I, I was not a fan of the previous Bleachers uh-huh records i found myself enjoying this album more than i expected and maybe i just had a low bar (laughs) um i know that like when i looked at the track list and i saw that he did a song with bruce springsteen that i was like i'm probably gonna like this and ian will probably hate this and i heard it it's a song called chinatown (laughs) i i actually thought that song was was all right i didn't mind that song um i mean the thing about this record is that I actually feel like this Bleach's record does have a more distinct personality. It's sort of like a magnetic fields record after like lots of ice cream. You know, it's like a very sugary, mm. upbeat thing, but it, it still has that. It has kind of like a lo-fi indie pop 
sensibility to it. Like you wouldn't, it seems like he's, uh, downscaling his superstar status on this record and is trying to make essentially a bedroom pop record. Yeah. And, and I don't, I mean, it didn't blow my mind, but I, I, I found myself enjoying it more than I expected. Yeah, I kind of begrudgingly enjoy this. Like, I, this album makes me want to listen to, like, I, I, I've been thinking of late that I probably just need to be listening to the radio or just, like, some satellite radio because my brain is so poisoned by music Twitter that, like, I make up my mind about stuff a lot before I hear it. Uh, and this is, like, if, if if I were to be told that, hey, this is some, you know, new indie rock auteur on Dead Oceans, like, I'd be thinking, oh, yeah, that makes sense. You know, it's maybe a little derivative of like the Last Vampire Weekend album or or what have you, but it's still pretty good. Um, but, you know, the fact that like it's Jack Antonoff, a lot of it, it's hard for me to connect with it emotionally, especially a song like it's called Chinatown and it involves Bruce Springsteen. Like it to me just seems, it, it reminds me of this. I'm going to use Largo core, you know, the, the Largo space in Los Angeles that has like a lot of like Amy Mann and Fiona Apple would be there. Just like this real kind of cleverness about songwriting. Like it's really about the craft, man. That just really turns me off. But you know what? Like it's a, it's not altogether that far removed from like the Foxing record, but like, whereas Foxing is kind of coming from a point of like more uh, emotional investment I don't know. Like it's, it's hard to hate. It's fine. I like it. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I think Antonov. I think he's invested, and he strikes me as a pretty earnest person. Yeah, like, I don't. I, I don't look at him as being detached. But you know, I I think the issue with Antonov sometimes is why this guy. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, why is he the one? who is the Svengali, or not Svengali, but like the go-to producer of so many big-time artists because he doesn't necessarily strike you as a genius like when you listen to his records. Well, maybe that's, what, like, maybe that's what's appealing about. Like, do you really want, like, uh, a genius trying to overshadow, say, Lord or Lana Del Rey or, like, someone coming well, in to change that? Well, that's my theory on him, is that he is, like, his mild-manneredness is part of his appeal for his collaborators, because he's not going to muscle in, and he's going to make a point to give all the credit to the people that he works with, which, again, I mean, that's an admirable thing. I mean, if we're just looking at him as a dude... (laughs) <laughs> you know, he doesn't seem like a he doesn't seem like a jerk or anything. He seems like a pretty nice guy. He seems like a good collaborator. Uh but I to me like what is confounding about him is that he doesn't seem exceptional. Mm. You know, you just wonder like what is it about this guy that makes everyone want to work with him? I mean, he he obviously is a very talented guy and he's obviously produced a lot of hits. Um but I don't know. He just, his music never has the wow factor for me. There's very little that he's done. Uh, especially lately. I mean, I mean, I think Melodrama is a great record. I think he certainly has co-written and produced some like really good songs. But like on his own and like by and large, I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's, he, he seems kind of meh to me a lot. Yeah, of the time. what you're saying is that you're a re- you're a steel train truther, and that <laughs> you you really hope that they 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 get back to the trampoline era. You know, steel train forever, baby. Yeah. <laughs>
All right, we now reach the part of our episode that we call Recommendation Corner, where Ian and I talk about something that we're into this week. Ian, why don't you go first? All right, so I want to talk about the new A Great Big Pile of Leaves album called Pono, and I just got to clarify right off top for Steve, this is not a reference to Neil Young's MP3 player. It's actually from, <laughs> it's it's the Hawaiian word for righteousness. Uh, oh, man. Yeah, I know. How, disappointing, right? Um, yeah, that's crushing. I, yeah, I did an interview with these guys uh, a little bit, a little while ago for Stereo Gum about them coming back uh, after eight years. In 2013, they were like one of the first emo revival bands you could really write about uh, from that glorious summer. Um, and yet, like, there's really not that much emo about them. They're, to me, they're, they play kind of like jazzy, chill indie rock about like, you know, getting ice cream, get like going to the pool just summer stuff, very low key in a way. It makes me think of what people who liked Mac DeMarco <laughs> or, you know, just stuff from that, like the kind of chill bro era of like the mid aughts might hear. Then like, it's like, Oh, this is pretty chill, but you know, they do it from like a very complicated musicianship standpoint. Um, and the new record does what the last one, you're always on my mind did. Um, it, like there's really not much that sounds like them, but if you, if, if you like the idea of just like chill kind of indie rock, but also, um, with a little bit of like jazz complications in there, like a 13, four time signature. And also one of the look, like one of the few emo bands to sing in a low voice. I think this one, you know, it, it's, it's very low stakes, low key, but, I enjoy it a lot, and they're back after eight years too. Uh, you know, it's it's one it's one for the heads, you know. So uh, I want to talk about. Well, this is an album that isn't out yet. I have a feeling that we're going to talk about this in a few weeks, but this is a chance for the IndieCast listener to get an early preview of what I think is one of the really enjoyable rock records of like late summer, which is uh, Glow On by a band from Baltimore called Turnstile. Oh, yeah. Uh, they put out a new single this week called Fly Again. Mm -hmm. And if you go on streaming platforms, you can basically hear about half the record at this point. <laughs> They've put out like a lot of songs from Glow On. And uh, this is a really fascinating band because uh, they've been described as a super group of sorts. There's members of uh, various Baltimore hardcore punk bands mm -hmm. in Turnstile. Uh, but Turnstile even though they are described sometimes as hardcore punk, to me, they're basically just a melodic hard rock band, mm -hmm. uh, which is a genre that I've always loved. And you don't really hear that much anymore of like just hard rock bands that aren't going the metal route or aren't going like the fast and furious punk route, but, but are just playing heavy riffs that are also uh, really pretty and melodic and and anthemic and, and and beautiful and turnstile really does deliver on that level uh they put out a record in 2018 called time and space that i know ian and i yeah. both really liked and uh i think if you are a fan of the show and you are a fan <laughs> of like 90s alt rock you will like this band a lot uh so i again i don't want to go too much yeah. into this because i have a feeling that we're going to talk about turnstile in a few weeks but i just wanted to give a heads up uh that you can hear a lot of this record right now on most streaming platforms, and I would really recommend checking it out. So just just look up uh, "Fly Again." That's the name of the single, and there's I think six or seven songs listed with that uh, on streaming platforms. So check that out, and we'll reconnect again in a few weeks to talk more about Turnstile. So we've now reached the 
end of our episode. So thank you so much for listening to this episode of IndieCast. We'll be back with more news and reviews and hashing out trends next week. And if you're looking for more music recommendations, sign up for the Indie Mixtape Newsletter. You can go to uprocks.com backslash indie, and I recommend five albums per week, and we'll send it directly to your email box.